This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Job 1, the book of Job. On September 2nd, 2022, 34-year-old kindergarten teacher Eliza Fletcher went out for her morning run on the streets of Memphis, Tennessee. When she hadn't come home by 7.45 a.m., her husband Richard called the police. Video surveillance footage revealed that Eliza had been kidnapped and forced into a vehicle. Three days later, her body was found near an abandoned duplex. The autopsy report confirmed she had died of a gunshot wound to the head and blunt force trauma. If you were to look into the eyes of her husband and two little boys, what would you say? What would you be thinking? There are, of course, countless examples like this one where inexplicable suffering descends upon people who just don't seem to deserve it. This problem has probably been summed up best with the pointed question, why do bad things happen to good people? I'm sure we could go around the room here and listen to stories of suffering that inevitably include the question, why? So for three Sundays, we're going to meditate together on this subject by looking at the very famous story of Job. No book of the Bible deals more honestly and authentically with suffering than this one. I want to read the opening scene so we have some understanding of what transpires in this book. Job chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. 
The Lord said to Satan, very well, then everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, then he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. There's nothing more certain in life than this. You are going to suffer. There's nothing more certain. So we're going to look today from this passage, we're going to look at suffering from four vantage points. We're going to look at how Satan sees suffering, how God sees suffering, how Job sees suffering, and how you can see suffering. First, how Satan sees suffering. Now, at the beginning of the story, we're given a glimpse into just how much God has blessed Job. In that time, one's wealth was reflected in flocks. Job has 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, that's 1,000 individual oxen, 500 female donkeys, incredibly vast herds. Additionally, we're told that Job is married. He's got 10 kids, 
seven boys and three girls. He's got a number of servants. We're also told that Job's a very righteous man, a man of great integrity. Look at what God himself says about him. Verse 8, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Job is a man who's got it all. He's got a great family. He's got financial security. He's a man that God is very proud of. Isn't this what we would expect in a well-run world? He's healthy, wealthy, and wise. All of that sets the stage for a conversation that ensues between God and Satan. And in this conversation, the curtain is pulled back, and the readers of the book are allowed to peer into the workings of innocent suffering. And the first thing we notice is the premise Satan operates under. Essentially, we are told what Satan thinks about you and what he thinks about me. We're told also what he thinks about God. Verse 9, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. What do these verses reveal about how Satan views you? He thinks you praise God, you're loyal to God, only when there are benefits attached to it. Satan thinks you live for God only when you're going to get something out of it. This is his premise. That's how he sees you. Satan thinks you've discovered the prosperity gospel. If you honor the Lord, he will make you richer and richer. You and your wife will have children and your children will be healthy and successful. Your bank balance will grow. You'll enjoy fabulous vacations and a lifestyle that make pagan billionaires envious. Who wouldn't be devoted to the Lord if that's what you get out of it? Satan is poking holes in your motive for being loyal to God. So Satan views suffering as a way to strip away all those perks and expose you as a fraud. But his premise also reveals what he thinks about God. Satan doesn't believe for a moment that the Lord has any intrinsic worth or value. None. That God is worthy of your worship and obedience simply because he is who he is. Satan believes the only reason you would devote your life to the Lord is because of the benefits attached to doing so. He believes that if those benefits were removed, you would give up on God, revealing to the world that God has no value apart from the gifts that he dispenses into your life. In other words, Satan thinks God is a sugar daddy. And he thinks you view him that way too. He says, these people of Alliance Bible Church don't cherish the Lord because he's worthy of it. They cling to God only because he has the power to give them stuff. To bless them relationally and materially and to protect them physically. 
Take away all the relational, material blessing and physical protection and watch them fold like a deck of cards. Now, I do believe Satan is onto something here. He's not called the most cunning and crafty creature for no reason. He knows the most natural question for us to ask in any situation is, what's in it for me? We do this in life. You might build a relationship with someone whom you think can open doors for you professionally, get you the job you want. But when you realize they're not going to do that for you, you pull away. There wasn't anything in it for you. So you left. You might pursue someone in hopes that they'll give you romance, but when they realize, when you realize they just want to be friends, you pull away. There wasn't anything in it for you. See, Satan views suffering as an opportunity to expose us as frauds who worship and obey the Lord only when there are benefits attached to it, simultaneously exposing the lack of intrinsic worth that God may have. That's how Satan views suffering. How does God see it? The readers of the book of Job are given a glimpse into something Job can't see. Very important to understanding the book is that Job is completely unaware of the conversation that transpired between God and Satan. We see it. Job is unaware of it. Job was minding his own business. He's going about his day. It's routine. Blessings of God, walking with integrity before him. When suddenly his life is turned upside down to a degree most of us will never experience. If Job could see... What we see in this text, he would notice that first of all, God sees suffering as a controllable enemy. Keep in mind, suffering is Satan's idea. In the story, suffering is Satan's idea. To make Job suffer is Satan's idea. To make you suffer is Satan's idea. He comes up with the plans and he executes them. That's why it's an enemy. But here's the amazing part about this. Though suffering is an enemy... God controls its every move. Verse 12, the Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. In the second round, chapter 2, verse 6, the Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So listen, Satan is not free to make Job suffer without God permitting it to happen. What is he doing here? Satan is getting a permission slip from God. He's not free to make Job suffer without God first authorizing it. Think about what would happen if life didn't work this way. What if instead you had a Satan who can do whatever he wants to you whenever he wants? A Satan who has free reign to afflict you as severely and as often as he would like. You have any idea what your life would be like if it worked that way? Praise God, that's not the way suffering works. Here we have a Satan who is bound by the authority of God. A Satan who cannot move an inch into your life 
unless God sanctions it. And notice, God doesn't just sanction the fact that it does happen. He tells how, Satan how far he can go. Very well, you can go this far, but no farther. Very well, you can go this far, but no farther. Who's controlling things? God sees suffering as a controllable enemy. Second, God sees suffering as an opportunity. Verse 8, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him, on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Now God knows what Satan's up to. God knows Satan thinks there is not a single human being who's going to remain loyal to him if faced with tragedy. So God sets out to embarrass Satan. Satan, I give you Job, a man of integrity. There's nobody like him. He's not going to bail on me even if you torture him. And you know what? God is right. Through all the story, Job doesn't bail on God when he loses everything. So God sees suffering as an opportunity to demonstrate the spiritual integrity of his people and destroy everything Satan wants to accomplish. What's fascinating about this book is that after chapter 2, verse 7, Satan is never seen or heard or mentioned again in this book. Job's response to suffering, listen to this, Job's response to suffering sends Satan away, pouting, humiliated, with his tail tucked between his legs. God sees suffering as an opportunity to demonstrate the spiritual integrity of his people and undermine everything Satan wants to accomplish. Now, those of you who have suffered greatly with significant loss are probably saying, I can understand that, but why does God have to demonstrate our spiritual integrity by permitting this? Why does God have to demonstrate our spiritual integrity by permitting this? Couldn't he do it some other way? No. It can't be done some other way. Why? Because it's only in suffering what you really think and feel about God is revealed. It's only in suffering, only in suffering, where what you really think and feel about God is revealed. Take away all the perks in life, a home to live in, a car to drive, fairly good health to sustain me, food, family, friends, take it all away. All you've got left is God. Is that enough? The only way to truly know what you think and feel about God is to strip away every possible ulterior motive you may have for loving him. When that moment came for Job, when it was all stripped away, what he thought and felt about God sent Satan away humiliated. God was enough. So God sees suffering as an opportunity to demonstrate the spiritual integrity of his people and the intrinsic worth of his own glory and undermine what Satan was trying to accomplish. Third, how Job sees suffering. Verse 20, at this, Job got up and tore his robes and shaved his head. 
And he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. I think there's three things we can notice about how Job sees suffering. Job, first of all, sees suffering as something to mourn. Let's be clear about this. uh, In a German, Scandinavian, Dutch culture, the Bible doesn't teach keep a stiff upper lip in your suffering. Those of you who tend towards maintaining a stoic posture in your hurt, make note of this one. Job tears his robe, shaves his head, falls to the ground, and cries out to God. How many of us would be calling a beloved Ozaki County institution if we saw someone responding to suffering in this way? Suffering is something to mourn. There should be tears. There should be hurt. There should be grief. Listen to this. That is a holy way to respond to suffering. That's a holy way to respond to suffering. There's so much more that needs to be said about that. I'm going to take a couple of Sundays in April to to teach on that as we look at a couple of, we look at the topic of lament. I'm going to leave that for now. We're going to come back to that in April and spend some concentrated time on that. First of all, it's something to, to mourn. Second, something through which to worship God. So Job sees suffering as something to mourn. He also sees it simultaneously as something through which to worship God. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. The author even used the word worship to describe Job's posture in all this. What did the Lord give? Money, possessions, children, health. Why is Job able to praise God when he loses all those things? Hmm? Why is he able to praise God when he loses all those things? Because his joy was not ultimately tied to his possessions or even his children. His joy was tied directly to God. See, if your joy is ultimately anchored to things that God has blessed you with, money, possessions, health, even your children, when those things are taken from you, it will plunge you into deeper sadness and anger and despair. If the ultimate source of your joy is tethered to something you can lose, when you do lose it, what's going to happen? You'll lose your joy. If, however, your joy is tied to God, if your life is really built on God, when when suffering comes and the things in your life are taken away, yes, you're going to mourn, you're going to grieve, But that is going to drive you deeper and deeper into God, into the source of your joy. This is why I think suffering rarely has a static effect in someone's life. Suffering is a polarizing event. It either sends people into the pits of despair and anger, 
or it says that sends them into the heights in intimacy with God. It's a polarizing event. It does not have a static effect. It does one or the other. It works in the extremes. The only way it's possible to praise God when he takes away is to root your joy in something that can't be taken away. That's God himself. Not what he's given you, not what he's blessed you with, but God himself. Job was able to praise and worship God in the middle of his pain after he's lost everything because his joy is ultimately rooted in God himself. Third, Job sees suffering as something to accept from God and nobody else. It's here where his wonderfully encouraging wife speaks up and says, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now notice Job doesn't blame Mother Nature for his suffering. He doesn't blame the Sabaeans or the Chaldeans for his suffering. He doesn't even blame Satan. Though they are directly responsible for his suffering, Job looks right past them. He looks right past them to God and says, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? If you accept suffering from somebody other than God, if you think the ultimate origin of your suffering is from someone other than God, where is God exactly? And what is he really like? If if Job was to attribute this whole thing to Satan, where would God be in Job's mind? And what would he be like? Where was he? Absent? Asleep? Caught off guard, fooled, overpowered. If Job attributes his suffering ultimately to Satan and God was absent asleep, caught off guard, fooled, or overpowered, what kind of God is that? See, in the middle of the mess, this is what can be of such incredible source of hope and strength. The Bible insists, Christian, our God never says, oops. Never. After her daughter was born, Nancy Guthrie knew that something was wrong. Though she named the baby Hope, there wasn't much to be hopeful about. Born with club feet, extreme lethargy, and an inability to suck, among other problems, Hope was officially diagnosed with Zellweger syndrome. This rare metabolic disorder is characterized by an absence of Paroxysomes, cell structures that rid the body of toxic substances. There is no treatment. There is no cure. Most babies with the disease live less than six months. At first, I thought it was my fault, says Nancy, that I didn't pray enough for a healthy baby and was now paying for it. She considered a recent Bible study she had done on the book of Job. At the time, she wondered if she could do what Job did. She recalled the passage where God said, My servant Job will be faithful to me no matter what. I remember being so challenged by that, she says. I couldn't imagine God ever having that confidence in me. As Nancy looked at hope, she thought, Here's my chance to respond to the worst thing I can imagine in a way that is pleasing to God. 
It wasn't easy. Nancy had to make that decision over and over again during the next few months. Her grieving didn't get easier. Hope wasn't healed. The pain didn't lessen. But each day, Nancy tried to respond faithfully despite her loneliness and grief. When people offered to drop off meals, she and David invited them in to stay. When people expressed pity at their circumstances, she asked them to celebrate their daughter's life. Whereas before we talked to our neighbors about our lawns, we never had meaningless conversations anymore. We were talking about life and death and Jesus in a way that we never had before. In preparing for her own loss, Nancy began to help others. On her 199th day of life, hope took her last breath. Both parents must be carriers of the recessive gene for Zellweger syndrome to occur. The Guthries decided Dave would have a vasectomy to prevent another pregnancy. Only one in 2,000 vasectomies fail, so the couple felt secure. But one year after Hope died, Nancy was pregnant again. Prenatal testing revealed their third child would also have Zellweger syndrome. Time magazine interviewed Nancy and David for an article in which the writer compared their plight to that of Job's in the Old Testament. The article quotes an entry from Nancy's journal. Like Job, we often cannot see the hidden purposes of God, she wrote, but we can determine to be faithful and keep walking toward him in the darkness. Named after the angel, Gabriel was born on July 16, 2001 the same day the Guthrie's story appeared in time. They knew what to expect. Their son's first day would be his best. Gabriel died 183 days later. Nancy says that answering how or why begins with another question. What? What do we believe about God? Do I trust the character of God enough To believe he's in control and whatever he allows in my life will be for my ultimate good. Not that whatever he allows in my life is good, says Nancy. Can I trust knowing him will be good enough to make whatever it costs me to know him worth it? In other words, Nancy is saying, can I trust that God never says oops? Suffering is something to be accepted from nobody but God. Fourth, how you can see suffering. When suffering strikes, I think we all deal with a very deep question that we actually may not be cognizant of. Am I still loved? This question throws us into the fray of Satan's schemes. Is the blessings of God that convince us he loves us the only way we're convinced he loves us? If so, when the blessings are removed, can we be sure God still loves us? Well, we have a resource Job didn't have. And that's the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus was the truly innocent sufferer. In the midst of his suffering, he cries out, My God, my God, why? And he gets no answer. 
just deafening silence. He has obeyed perfectly, but is now receiving your penalty. And yet in his final breath, he gasps to say to his father, into your hands I commit my spirit, a cry of faith and trust. In the midst of his most excruciating pain and loss, when he's getting what he doesn't deserve and receiving no answer, he still entrusts himself to his father. Why did Jesus use his last breath to entrust himself to his father? There are numerous reasons for it, of course, but one has to be, he did it for you. He used his final breath to entrust himself to his father and his father's plan, his father's will, because if he hadn't done that, we would be damned to hell. He used his final breath to entrust himself to his father so that he could purchase for you a future so indescribably beautiful. Words fall far short in describing it. So when you're in the thick of it, when life is excruciatingly painful, when you're crying out to God and getting no answers, you have one thing Job didn't have. You have Jesus. Though tortured and abandoned, crying out to God in faith and trust and doing it for you. So no matter how much it hurts, when you look at the cross, there is one thing you can be absolutely certain of. Jesus loves you more than you can possibly imagine. Jesus whispers a message to our hurting souls. And he says, though your suffering may be a mystery, my love for you isn't. That is undeniable. On September 10th, 2022, Eliza Fletcher was laid to rest at her home church, the Second Presbyterian in Memphis, Tennessee. This funeral was thick with scripture. Psalm 23, Psalm 42, Romans 8. They sang Eliza's three favorite worship songs, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, Crown him with many crowns, and in Christ alone. Her pastor, George Robertson, proclaimed, We say against the powers of darkness and the powers of hell on this day, this day that God has made, we will rejoice and be glad. That's a backwards and upside down message. But it rings with the force of a thousand choirs for only one reason. Jesus died and rose again for sinners and sufferers like you and me. Let's pray. Father, suffering is a cruel invader. It leaves us hurting, crying out for answers, often perplexed. As we look at the story of Job, would you expand our view of you? Would you show us where we have conditioned our love for you on what we get from you? 
pray that you'd show us where our interest in you is ultimately selfishly motivated. I pray, Lord, you'd also encourage us by just how in control of our suffering you are. Comfort us in our pain that as we endure them and as we look at the cross simultaneously, though our suffering may mystify us, there's one thing we can be certain of. Your love for us is undeniable. We can look to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus and we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is not a moment of our lives where you say, oops, not one moment. I pray that you'd help us to respond. Whatever the hardship is, whatever the adversity is now, you'd help us to respond in a deep-seated trust in who you are and what you're doing. We ask to the glory of Jesus' name. Amen.